about nine years ago now, a woman named Margaret Geary made the news. She was a, a nun at a convent near Baltimore, and all of the sisters in her house were going away for a three-day conference. But she was 85 and was not going to go, so she was staying back uh, by herself. So shortly after the other sisters left, she got up from her room, went down to the fridge, convent fridge, pulled out a cup of water that had uh, celery sticks in it out of the fridge as a snack, went back to the elevator, got on, pushed up, everything started moving fine, and then right about two feet up, it just jerked and stopped. So she tried to open the door and nothing was happening, and so then she tried to pry the door open and could not even begin to do that. And right then, the electricity went out and everything went dark. And uh, she started breathing fast, and then she realized, oh, I, brought, I have my purse with me, and my purse has my cell phone. So she rummaged in the purse, pulled out the cell phone, and realized, I can't get a signal in this elevator shaft. I wonder if some of you feel just a little bit like Margaret Geary. You feel stuck. This is not what you had planned. You feel limited. There are things you cannot get out of. And there you are. This befalls all of us at different times and in different, different ways. Maybe right now, uh, part of your limits is money. It's just so tight. You can't do what you need or want to do. Maybe you or your child have health issues that are not getting better and maybe are getting worse. Maybe it's your job situation. It just feels heavy, but you see no particular way out. What is that stuck elevator for you? What is that area of your life where you feel, would somebody come and get me out of this thing? Well, whatever your situation may be, I want to help us all tonight start to learn the fine art of finding joy in our limits. Yes, our limits. Our limits are real. Our limits are painful. If we could get rid of them, we would have already. But for the Christian, our limits offer a possibility that wasn't there before we met Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to look at with you tonight. But I will say, finding joy in our limits, it's not easy. And it's not automatic. We have to learn it. Let's learn together tonight from a Christian who is stuck, not in an elevator, but in a jail. That Christian is the church planner named Paul, and he's in trouble with the empire. He is dealing with not just one limit, but three. I don't know if you've noticed that life has a way of pylons. <laughs> just when you thought it was bad enough, but maybe you could handle the one limit, then two and three come. The first huge limit Paul has is this. I've lost my freedom. I've lost my freedom. Maybe you have because of some situation you're facing. But you can't do what you used to do. Paul has, it, Paul's lost his freedom because he's been put in jail. Paul actually has spent years of his life by the time this occasion occurs in jail. 
By the time he, they finally give him the death sentence, he will have spent almost 25% of his career as a church planner in jail or under house arrest. Now let's take in what a Roman jail looks like and smells like. Scholar John McRae writes, most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Philippi is a city in Greece, and Paul had gone there to start a church and got thrown in jail. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, and sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. Now, it's possible that Paul, being an important prisoner, might be getting better treatment. We don't know. But what we do know is that no matter who you were as a prisoner, you almost always had to supply your own food. Well, how are you going to do that? Unless your friends help you out, you don't eat for a while. And knowing this, the Christians back in Philippi, where he had gone to start a church and got arrested while he was there, a church that he had actually started now 10 years ago, took up a collection for Paul so he'd have enough to eat. And so he receives their gift, and now he's sitting down and writing a letter to thank them, a thank you note for helping him out in, his, in prison. So he'll eat. And he, he starts here in Philippians 1 and verse 12. I want to report to you, friends, because they want to know how he's doing, that my imprisonment here he's probably in the city of Rome, has had the opposite of its intended effect. Why is that? Well, he'd been arrested for teaching about Jesus, so they threw him in jail, so he couldn't do that. So that would stop. Well, Paul says, it didn't work. Nah, nah, nah. Instead of, (laughs) he didn't say that. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. Now, how is that possible? Well, The message about Jesus has kept spreading two ways, even though Paul's locked up. The first one is, he says, all the soldiers here, most likely meaning the entire Praetorian Guard, those elite soldiers in Rome, and everyone else too, found out that I'm in jail, literally in chains, because of this Messiah. And that got their curiosity going. And now they've learned all about him. Apparently, people keep wandering down to his cell and saying, what are you in for? I heard you're not in for some violent crime. Like, what, why are you even here? And then he starts preaching. So he's in jail. He's still preaching. Second, the message about Jesus has kept on spreading because most of the followers of Jesus here, he says, have become far more sure of themselves in the faith than ever speaking out fearlessly about God, about the Messiah. You know, when a well-known Christian like Paul gets arrested, it is the natural response that all the other Christians kind of hunker down and hide, and they don't make waves, and they don't really let it be known that they're a Christian. That's the natural human response. But what's happened with these Christians right here is instead of worrying about their own skin, they've said to themselves, look, if Paul's taken out, we got to step up. If he's down, we got to step up. We got to speak about Jesus more, not less. We got to carry on what he can't do right now. So let's learn from Paul. How does he deal with his first limit, this loss of freedom? Well, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, oh, jail's great. 
He can't travel to preach, which is his life passion. He can't work to support himself. It hurts to lose your freedom. He spent his whole life not asking his churches for a dime. And now he, he, he is still dependent on them. He has to be. So why doesn't Paul get bitter about that or complain about that? And here's a key. There's something he loves even more than his freedom. There's something he loves even more than his freedom. So get this. In Paul's mind, it's like this. My freedom, I love it, but it's like here in priority in my life. My passion for spreading the message of Jesus is here. My freedom here, I love it. But compared to talking about Jesus, it's up here. So you can take away this. I still get what I most want. So I'm good. For the Christian, because of that move right there, every limitation is an invitation. Now think about your situation right now. You feel the limitation. This Something that you value is now under threat. But can you also receive the invitation? It's an invitation from Jesus written to you. And he's saying, essentially, you can know me even deeper than you ever have. You can get closer to me through this. Are you willing to place me above what you always thought you needed to survive? When our daughter was uh, dating a guy named Jordan, they were getting serious, and so they wanted the parents to meet. So uh, we met up at Giordano's. So Ann and, and her boyfriend, Jordan, and Jordan's parents, and Karen and me. And we got, uh, I remember rolling Karen into Giordano's in a wheelchair, um, which she'd been in for several months while she was waiting for spine surgery. And we got there, and Jordan's dad, Paul, was also in a wheelchair, but he'd been in his for 36 years. And we started to hear his story. He was in a, a terrible car wreck in northern Indiana in his early 30s. He had to crawl a long distance for help. They air vac him up here to uh, northwestern in Chicago. And he was paralyzed from T4 down. So he was one inch away from becoming quadriplegic. Well, he and Kathy were dating back then, and the doctor at Northwestern came in his room once and said, Paul, you just need to accept your new life. You need to accept that you're not going to be able to really hold a job. You need to accept that it's not going to work with Kathy. You, you may never get married. You just need to accept. And Paul said to him, you don't know the God I do. Well, he and Kathy have now been married for 39 years. Paul recently retired after teaching elementary school for 30-some years, 29 of them in the wheelchair. And Karen and I see their courage and their grace. Lately, though, they have felt especially painful limits. Paul has had six surgeries in the last two years. So I asked them this week, I called them up and said, hey, guys, in the midst of all your limits, how do you find 
meaning or hope or joy in the midst of those. And uh, I wrote down what they said. Paul said, the biggest thing that's always helped me is when people actually care for you. He said, I remember thinking this very thing when I was strapped in 41 years ago at Northwestern. People sent cards and letters, and when people care, it turns you to God more. But he said, even when people fail you, which they do, God never does. He says, I plead to God, God, they do care, but they don't know how. So God, you're the only one who can help me, ultimately. He says, I concentrate on finding joy in the Lord. It's not easy, but I try to be joyful in my problems. Then Kathy said, I've always trusted that God, no matter what, is going to take care of you. God's got a plan. In our most recent struggle, she said, Paul was in so much pain at one point that, how'd she put it? He was hoping that all the days appointed for him could be moved up. And that morning, she says, I read my devotional and it was really meaningful for dealing with pain, very encouraging. So she shared that verse with Paul. And he said, I was just listening to Moody Radio and they said that exact verse. She said, God gave that double reminder. So I've learned that God cares for you and has a plan for your pain. He is with you. Friends, every limitation is also an invitation. And that's what kept Paul, gave him that burning heart to get through jail. Well, his second limitation is one you may (laughs) be suffering. People are working against me, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Some here in verse 15, he says, some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. Some of the people, they're great. They, they have a great heart and they know that I can't preach, so they're out there preaching. But here's what he, he's talking about. He, those people whose motives are bad, they think that now that I'm out of the picture, they're greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. I don't know if you've ever had a work situation or a family situation where there was that kind of competition. There was that sense of, oh, this person's vulnerable. Now let's go. But what these leaders are doing, and they're Christian leaders, by the way, they're using Paul's jail term to take away some of his followers, some of his influence, all this work that he's done so painstakingly over years. And Paul's sitting there, not a thing he can do about it. And he knows by the time I get out, there will be Christians and there will be churches who are like, Paul, yeah, nice to see you, but we've kind of moved on. We've got a new preacher who's easier to understand and he's more dynamic. So Paul asks out loud, how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to respond to that? And he says this, I've decided I don't really care about their motives. I don't really care whether they're mixed, bad, or indifferent because every time they open their mouth, Jesus is still getting preached. Now once again, we see what happens, how Paul thinks about things. He's saying, my work my labors, my relationships, my influence, everything I've labored for, that matters to me. 
But there's something that matters even more. Jesus. Is he getting preached about? Then I'm okay. This is just amazing. Jesus is inviting you and me in our limitations to know him more. To love him so much that we would take what we are so painfully limited and losing and say, that's okay. I get you. I get you. And now we move to Paul's third limit, which is the hardest of them all. I've lost my freedom. People are working against me. I can't do anything about it. And the third one is, I could die any day. I'm here in jail waiting for court. I could get the death sentence. And here I want to read from the NIV translation of verse 19. Paul says, despite that, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the word deliverance here probably has double meaning. Paul's saying, look, I'm delivered either way. One way, I go to trial, I get off. Or I go to trial and they don't give me the death sentence, so I'm delivered from jail and from execution. Or the other way, I go to trial and I don't get off and they give me the death sentence. Well, guess what? I'm delivered from the pains of this life and into the arms of Jesus Christ, who's everything to me. So guess what? I'm still okay. I get delivered either way. They can throw me the worst thing they got. I'm still good. What Paul's doing here is he's taking the most precious thing he has and that any one of us has, our very life, and he's saying, as valuable as that is to me, there's one thing that matters even more. Life with Christ. If I got that, I'm okay. And if I die, I get more life with Christ. unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that's like? To be given a new name from his very lips. To be clothed in a white robe. To completely forget any sense of shame and just have him gently, gently wipe away the tears from your eye. So how do we find joy in our limits? I don't know what others do, but I'll tell you the only answer I know. Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul can truthfully say, it doesn't matter I'm losing my freedom because the message about Jesus is still going forth. It doesn't matter that other people are trampling on my work and taking away my friends. I still love Jesus more and Jesus is getting spoken. It doesn't matter. I could get the death sentence and I don't know when because then I'm just even going to be more alive with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you tonight, where are you in your limits? What are you doing with those? What are they doing inside you? You know, it is utterly normal to ask, as we all do, why is this happening to me? But I don't know if you've noticed, that question usually doesn't get answered, and it usually leads to more frustration. 
and it can lead us into self-pity. So here's a pastoral suggestion for you. Try switching up the question. When you start to ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Flip the question and go, okay, this is a limitation. What's the invitation for me? What is Jesus Christ inviting me into? Now, when you and I get an invitation to some big event, like, say, a, a wedding and a reception or a graduation bash or a retirement party or something like that, we need to respond. People expect that we will RSVP. And there's more than that. We've got to respond with, say, getting a gift. What's the appropriate gift? Where do I get it? How do I get it for them? We've got to figure out, what, do I have the right thing to wear, Right? If it's out of state or something like that, we got to figure out, okay, how do I travel? How do I make time for off work? we got to get somebody to care for the dog or the cat or house sit or, you know, make all the arrangements. There's, there's something involved in responding to an invitation. And to accept the invitation of Christ is to take something that we love and naturally cling to and set it at a place that, while still valuable, is lower than our love and our heart for Jesus Christ. Now that is not easy, friends. I do not say this glibly. This is like being in a mine and taking a chisel, hammer by hammer by hammer, to get those attachments loosened enough that we can finally get into what we're after, which is the deep vein of war, the shining gold, the treasure of all treasures, which is Jesus Christ, to know Christ, to love Christ, to say truthfully with Paul, for me, living is Christ, so I don't care about dying because that's an improvement. I'm getting an upgrade to first class. Remember... Uh, Margaret Geary, the 85-year-old nun who got stuck in the elevator. Well, four nights and three days later, the other sisters got back from the conference and they pulled her out of the elevator. Uh, And they said, well, what did you do in there for all this time? And she said, well, I started to panic. And, but after a while, I realized, you know what? I'm stuck. I can either panic or I can pray. So she treated it like a three-day prayer retreat that she didn't have to reserve a space for. (laughs) She sat on the floor of the elevator, and she ate some of the celery sticks, and she prayed. Then she sipped a little water out of the cup, and she prayed. And then she took her sweater off, made it like a pillow for her head, put the purse in the lower back so it wouldn't hurt so much, fell asleep, and when she got up, She continued to pray. So they pulled her out, (laughs) and they said, what was it like for you? And she said, quote, I finally realized God had provided for me an opportunity to draw closer to him. Amen.